Hey, everybody, this is Dave Pilkey, the creator of Dogman, and you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now, that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. are listening to the great big beautiful podcast this week on the show whatever whatever community or background you have you you want and i think children deserve to read books that are varied and yes there are those books where you stand up to a bully or an oppressor or overcome some adversity but there's also just you know regular stories of kids doing everyday things Mm -hmm. that um, need to be told as well, where you're not necessarily being marginalized or otherized right. or tormented in some way or overcoming some horrible adversity. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Sherry Sondheimer. Welcome back to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. You can find us on the socials at thegbbpodcast. You can find us wherever you download podcasts from Spotify, iTunes. Um, where else do you get podcasts from? I don't know. Google, that other thing. Google Stitcher. Play, Stitcher, that other thing, that thing you use on your phone. <laughs> Whatever podcatcher app you use, we're there. Welcome back to another episode. I'm your host, Jamie Green. You can find me at The Roarbots, and we already heard Shiri. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Staying warm? Eh, trying. It's been a brutal winter. Um, trying to think of reasons to have the oven on. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, we... Thank goodness for our cookie challenge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, now you got to tell the people what that is. Uh, Jamie and I between the two of us are trying to bake this year 50 cookies that we have never made before he is a giant slacker and i've already made five you've made five well i've made three i just haven't written anything about them yet oh well how was i supposed to know yeah well if you are interested in learning more about this wonderful cookie challenge you can go head on over to theroarbots.com and just uh, search for cookie challenge and they'll pop up and we're just posting, you know, it's not, we're not like, it's not like a mom blog where we post, post like recipes and have like 400 million different uh, ads cluttering up the page. It's just, yeah. it's just a place for really, for uh, the two of us to, to keep track of this little adventure of ours and say, this is what I made and it was yummy or it was a disaster, but we haven't had any disasters yet, which is nice. Not yet. No, I kind of had a, a mild disaster, but I'm not going to write about it because it was more of like a bar and not a cookie, but that's okay. Anyway, we're I way off topic. other disasters. <laughs> I set the handle of my tea kettle on fire. Yeah, I don't know how that happens, but... Um, totally unrelated to cookies. Totally. And bo- all of this is totally unrelated to our episode this week and our guests. So uh, let's... Is let, it let, is not she gave us a cookie recipe that I made. She did. You're right. See? It all comes back. <laughs> it's all a big circle. This week... We, <laughs> this week, we are talking to Hannah Khan, who first came on my radar... Last year, I should have again. I don't do my homework very well when we when we talk about this, but um, her book Amina's Voice kind of came across my desk. It was Amina's Voice. Amina's Voice. God, I did it again. You're right. I'm sorry. Her book Amina's Voice came across my desk. It was one of the 
first books in the Salam Reads imprint of Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster, obviously, is a huge publisher. And they have a relatively new imprint that the intent of which is to shine a light on uh, Muslim voices. Either the author is of Muslim heritage or the character is, or the setting is, but um, sh- her book, Amina's Voice, was one of the original titles. It's a young adult uh, novel. Very good. I, I wrote up a review about it over on the Robots. I'll probably link to it if you found this episode on the gbbpodcast.com. But she has written a bunch of other books. She's written, um, she's written a couple like board books and picture books for very young children. Mm-hmm. She's written an entire series about a middle school basketball player, which you got. And I, I have not read those, but we talk a bit about those in the interview with her and they sound really interesting. Yep. She wrote a Curious George book. She did. You're right. About Ramadan. Mm hmm. So a lot, and, and she's local to me, which I always find exciting. So she, she lives, I mean, I don't know exactly where she lives, but her, the town where she lives is about 15 minutes away from me, which is, um, pretty exciting for me, I think. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we talked to her about, um, a lot of things, including cookies toward the end because Sherry couldn't help herself. And we, you got a very good recipe out of her though. I did. I did. And the cookies were delicious. It, that is also written up on the robots. You did. You wrote that. that that's I did. as of this recording, probably not so as of you are listening, but it is the most recent cookie challenge entry. So you could find it there. It's the toffee bars. Uh, and th- they were a big hit at work. Is, is that your, your standard? Is that your litmus test? I mean, yeah, I take all the leftovers into work. Your poor children. They don't get any. No, they get some. <laughs> I I just we leave ours around because I work from home um even with the full-time job so I don't have any more to take into work anymore but so my kids are all the happier Everyone everyone at work both loves me cuz I bring cookies and hates me because I was like guys you better buy the next size of pants this is a year long thing <laughs> I used to do uh further derailing this train I used to do uh, an ice cream thing with another coworker of mine before I worked at home full-time we would do every week during the summer, we would do an ice cream thing. She and I both made ice cream. We would just switch weeks and we would just bring in our batch of ice cream and it would be an excuse to get the whole team together into a room and just eat ice cream and talk, you know, non-work stuff. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was. It's fun. Making ice cream is surprisingly fun and easy. But um, anyway, this is not a food podcast. Yet. <laughs> Yet. Um, I'm, I'm still working on that, that chef guest. I'm, I'm seeing who should be our first guest that is a chef. So if you have any suggestions out there in listener land, let me know. I'll be more than happy to reach out and try to get a chef on the show. Uh, I gave you a suggestion the other day. You did? Um, Kamas Davis. Oh, is she, a, is she a chef, though, or does she just write about it? Is she a food Technically, writer? Technically, she's a butcher. Okay. Well, maybe we'll have a butcher on the show. That would be awesome, because that book you told me about sounds amazing. Right. Right, but what would you do without me? I don't know. We, this this introduction would be a lot shorter if I didn't have you. Yeah, but you'd have to read a lot more. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we're gonna get into the interview with Hannah Khan. We talk a lot about Amina's voice. We talk about the series of books that she has written for young adults about her um, basketball playing protagonist. We talk about Curious George. We talk about giving. Um, the, the Salam Reads imprint and, and shining a light on a community that is v- too, 
vastly underrepresented in publishing right now. Um, and we also talk about Spain a little bit. You ask her about yeah. Spain because she yeah. she lived there, studied there. I don't, did she study there? I, but she um, she has a fascination with Spain and uh, has been there quite a few times. So we talk about Spain. We talk about food. We talk about writing. It's just a fantastic conversation. Stick around and stick around next week and the week after that and the week after that. We will continue to bring you amazing if i do say so conversations maybe one day with a butcher or a cook or a candy maker that would be fun too um anyway if you have suggestions about specific people or specific types of people you would like to hear on the show hit me up on twitter you can find the show at the gbb podcast you can find me at the Roarbots. you can just let me know who you it is who it is you want to hear and i will do my best to get that person on the show uh until then Thanks for coming back. Thanks for hitting subscribe. And we will see you next week. Take care. Um, before we, we jump into any questions, I have to say uh, it's great to talk to a fellow Marylander. Oh, yay. <laughs> I, I have so, few, I have so I, few of them on the show that it's nice. What's that, Sherry? I'm a former Marylander, don't forget. That is true. But I have so few Marylanders on the show that I get excited when I talk to somebody local. So, yay! Yay! <laughs> um, I, I'm what, a Terp, too. You're a Terp, too. I went to UVA, so I'm not a Terp. Oh. Okay. Uh, and I'm not a native Marylander, but I am a transplant. I've lived here for a number of years now, but... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm often over in your neck of the woods. I'm, I'm in Howard County now. Okay. But I used to just be over in Silver Spring. Um, so yeah, so let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, your journey, I guess, for lack of a better word, but like what drew you to the genre that you're in? Like what drew you to picture books and middle grade books as a writer? What, you know, what stories did you think that you could tell there that maybe made it the best fit? Well, I sort of stumbled into children's writing through a friend. Um, I really had not considered that as a career path ever. And um, even though I always loved writing and it was always a part of my life and and a part of my career, I was working in public health, actually, doing communications work for nonprofit organizations and writing and editing very technical, Mm science-heavy, data-heavy type writing. Um, And it, you know, it was, it was fulfilling and in a very different way, but, but a very different type of writing, not, not very creative. Um, And then a friend of mine was working for scholastic book clubs, uh, the type where you would sign up and get a book of the month and a kit with a, you know, book inside and maybe some sort of gear that went along with it. And, um, and she asked me if I would be willing to help her. She and I had actually written together for our high school newspaper and been friends for years. And she knew how much I loved to write. Uh, and we had done some creative writing projects together in the past, but, um, she, she just was, I'm, I'm in a bind and I'm working on this series and it's taking up all my time because the person who has written it has done a really great job with the technical aspects of laying out activities for kids to do, but the writing is sort of flat and I'm, I'm spending too much time editing it and rewriting it. And would you be able to maybe take a stab at this? Mm. And with extra confidence, I probably shouldn't have had. I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, and I thought, okay, how hard can this be? Um, and then I sat down to actually try to make the language more exciting and more fun and realized that I was horribly boring and was, you know, could not even make it any more interesting than it was. But I had to really go back and forth and look at another book that she had done and, and examine the, the before and the after and realize that writing for children is such a different 
beast. And, you know, all the conventions that you are told as a kid not to do, you kind of get to do when you're writing for kids, like mm. use exclamation points and things like that. Um, so I, I just, that's how actually I got started. And I, I realized how much once I got the hang of it and, and figured out how to do it, um, I realized how much I just enjoyed writing for that age group and how how satisfying it was and how it took me back to being a kid and and the things that made me excited about reading uh, and that's really what, what started the whole process for me you said that you know you had enjoyed writing before then but were you like did you write for yourself or was it just something that you did whenever you had time or was it like you know every day I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write even though I don't really expect to get published but this is what I enjoy doing so I'm going to make a routine and a habit out of it no, I did not. Yeah. And even now, as a writer, I still don't have a routine in a habit, <laughs> which is terrible. Um, my, my secret confession. Uh, I No, I, I wrote when I when it struck me. I used to, I was a letter writer. I used to write letters to people. Um, and I, I re- wrote an occasional journal, but I, I wasn't regular about keeping a diary or anything like that. Um, when I was very young, in grade school, and as you know, a small kid, I used to write plays and poems and um, different projects with a friend of mine and we would get together and actually sometimes write a play and then perform it and that was something we did for fun so I had a stack of these old old things I had done and and saved Um, I used to write a family newspaper when I was in elementary school too uh, (laughs) that I saved and and discovered as an adult which was really fun to look back on Um, but no I never I never really had any creative writing aspirations I think I really didn't believe that I had any talent (laughs) or that I had anything that would anybody would want to read to be honest Um, I lacked that confidence and even now that that little voice in the back of my head is always yelling at me like yeah no one's gonna want to read this <laughs> even as i'm writing and thankfully getting my books published um so so it was just something that i did because i liked it but not with any regularity or so in mind so how did you get that confidence i mean how did you go from basically coming in as an editor to rewrite something that had already been done for for scholastic how did that or or something that came after that how did it give you that confidence to say you know what i can write i can write my own books yeah, it took a long time, to be honest. I, I suffer very heavily from imposter syndrome. <laughs> so I think even after writing uh, a couple books and, you know, ghostwriting these first couple of books, really ghost rewriting, I should say, um, my editor at Scholastic then hired me to write other books in the series. And then other editors hired me to write other books for other series. And so I had, you know, about eight or nine books published through Scholastic, but I still never called myself an author. I think part of the reason was that they weren't books that you could find in a bookstore. You know, mm-hmm. you had to subscribe to this service. And so I felt like that in a way they weren't, you know, real books. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't, it was, you were, you, know, an, you were an author with an asterisk probably, right? Exactly. That's how you saw That's yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, you know, I would tell people, you know, I was still a public health professional. I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I write children's books also. Um, but then I think it's, you know, when I had the idea to pitch my own ideas, it really was, uh, because I, I became a mother around the same time that I started doing this. And as I was reading books for my kids and, and eventually kids, I noticed the books that didn't exist that I really wanted to see exist in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, books that I didn't have as a kid myself and books that didn't, you know, included characters that look like me and look like my children. And um, that was where I, I thought, well, maybe I could do this now that I have the ability to write for kids. Maybe I can sort of use that to, yeah. to you know, make these books and and see if they if they go anywhere and at the time really there wasn't the same level of interest or call for 
diverse books as we see today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really had to make a case for why why this book might do well or might be appealing to a, a broad audience. But I really wanted to write for like a school a school library, public school library or public library audience was what I had in mind. Yeah. Um, and that experience of going, because I was a big library go attendee when I was a kid, and I went regularly, and, and just that idea of imagining a kid going into the library and picking up a book written by me that showed, <laughs> you know, showed a kid who re- reflected them in some way was um, what I really wanted to do. Well, and tell us a little bit more about the more of the details of the case you made, because, um, you know, your your picture books they cover subjects like clothing and shapes and colors, in you know, a, in a specific Muslim context. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, my daughter loved um, What's in My Hijab. She thought that was great. And she's oh, old, she's almost seven, so she's a little bit older for picture books. Um, and she still really liked it. And oh, she was yeah. telling me about, about you know, her friends whose moms wear them. So that was really cool. Oh, that's nice to hear. And I think, <laughs> I think we're never too old for picture books, in my, in my opinion. Oh, <laughs> no, here, here, here. I will... Never. Fully support that. <laughs> no, I think it's great. I think it's great that she still looks at them. And I think, um, you know, I try to encourage kids of all ages to still, look, you know, still look at picture books because I think they had just a different format for telling a story and getting that art experience along with the words. Um, but yeah, in terms of when I when I first started thinking about it, I thought about um, what, you know, what I would like to see in the first picture book that I published was called Night of the Moon. And it's a story about Ramadan, which I knew was something that people now we there's a number of books about Ramadan, but back then there really weren't very many, um, mostly just reference type books. And um, people, in my experience growing up, and then I saw with my children, had such little or limited understanding of what Ramadan was. And um, and so I thought, well, what, if, what about a book that chronicles what happens during that month from the perspective of a child instead of, you know, just a nonfiction-y type book about why people fast or, you know, the 30 days in the month, et cetera. Um, And then also to try to add another layer of appeal for educators, I centered the story around the moon changing shapes. I thought, oh, maybe the lunar, they could teach the lunar cycle in addition to teaching about or learning about Ramadan. Um, So that was the the way I thought about it. Like, how do I add layers of significance for an educator? And same thing with the shape book, Golden Domes and Silver Lanterns. Um, Sorry, that's the color book. And then the follow-up shape book, Crescent Moons and Pointed Minarets, I had the same idea that it's a concept book. So for people teaching preschoolers about colors, um, there's that component. But then you can also learn about something entirely different at the same time. You you mentioned when you first started out, like there wasn't really... um, I guess this market or there, there wasn't a place for the books and the stories and the characters that you wanted to write about and you had to make the case and, and argue for it. But I think today um, there is a growing, there's certainly a growing uh, vocal demand for, for books that are more diverse and more representative of the world around us. Uh, and your book, Amina's Voice is part of an imprint at Simon and Schuster, which is one of the biggest publishers in the country that is specifically dedicated to telling stories from a Muslim perspective and about Muslim characters. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, I think wasn't Amina's Voice their very first book? 
Yes, yes. yes. It launched the imprint, which was exciting. So how, I mean, number, first part is how did you initially get connected to them? And how did we get to that point where you were initially having to fight for the case to say, like, these are the stories I want to set, tell, and I think that there are people who want to read them. And then having this enormous publisher say, you know what, we're going to have an entire imprint that is just about telling these stories. Yeah, no, it's it's been amazing to see the progression because um, my first picture book, the one I mentioned, Night of the Moon, came out um, in 2008, so almost 11 years ago. And of course, I started writing it and sold it, you know, a couple years before that even. So it's been a long time, and in that time, just seeing the evolution of the industry and just the the call specifically for Muslim content has been amazing. Um, I I did see that, uh, you know. We would we did have niche publishers being a little bit more, um, you know, open, but they were the smaller, mm-hmm. less well-known imprints, maybe publishing books about different festivals or holidays or traditions. Um, but definitely to have the larger, you know, the, the big five or <laughs> big publishing companies yeah. take an interest is, has been new. Um, I think it's a number of things. I think we need diverse books. The hashtag that turned into the organization, the nonprofit, um, had a big role to play. Um, you know, social media driving that interest and people calling for this. The real the realization by um, Lee and Lowe, a multicultural mm-hmm. publisher, and others that really um, broadcasting this diversity gap that existed in the literature and, and showing how little representation there was statistically made a difference and made people sort of realize, whoa. Uh, and then I think the success of some books and seeing how there was this audience. I mean, it ultimately does boil down to money at the end of the day and, and publishers needing to sh- see that they can actually make money <laughs> with right. these books and there was there was a market for them all along probably but that there was that hesitance or reluctance to, to test the waters and see um you know if if it would actually be met with yeah. with sales yeah. so um for me i think with simon and schuster it was incredible because i had uh, my agent had been trying to sell ominous voice to to different publishers and we had spoken to uh, Zareen Joffrey, who's my, my editor now, and she was at Simon as an editor, but had not announced, I guess she was in the in the process of developing Salam Reads as, as this new imprint focusing on Muslims, but hadn't announced it yet. And um, she initially passed on my manuscript and um, along with everybody else. <laughs> and then I had to um, figure out what was wrong with it. And I, I went back and, and wrestled with it for a bit and figured out um, what it needed and with, with the help of my, my writing group. And, um, and then when I, I spoke to Zareen about resubmitting it to her with, with the new revisions and when after I did, she ended up buying it. And even when she was in the process of acquiring it, she still didn't mention, um, the new imprint cause it was news that was embargoed by right. the New York <laughs> times speaking of NDAs. Right? <laughs> and, um, so she, she didn't tell us until after, um, I, I believe it was, when we were waiting for the offer letter or, or around that time, it all, it all came about at the same time. So it was very exciting to hear. Uh, and for me on a personal note, I mean, one, it was a huge honor to have Ominous Voice launch the imprint, but also just to see how far things had come was, was really incredible. Yeah. Um, and I think I got a little taste of that, that same year when um, this, this little board book I wrote called it's Ramadan curious George came into the world mm-hmm. and really seeing the way uh, that book sold and, and just the reception that it got from from people of all backgrounds, but the Muslim community in particular, um, seeing it, you know, sell out before in its, you know, 
first printing and you know the publisher couldn't keep up with demand initially which was uh really neat to see and i think a big eye-opener for people um so that was exciting too it's been it's been a fun journey i'll bet (laughs) um i mean how how has that experience been though with with salam reads because i mean it sounds like you didn't i mean you didn't even know about it going into it so it's not like you wrote this you wrote the book with the intent of it launching this imprint that was just you know icing on the cake so to speak um but i've also i mean i i've been watching it with great interest because when you know with your book i'm sorry i mispronounced her name earlier but with with amina's voice and the gauntlet i think were the the two books Mm -hmm. that that launched the imprint um it seems like they've been taking their time to publish the right stories instead of just flooding the market with books um i'm just curious like have you been happy with the experience and have you been happy with the response i guess Yes. Um, and I, I do feel like it feels like I know a lot of other publishers, like you said, are in a way almost I won't say flooding the market, but there is this need, I feel like, or this perceived need to now keep up in mm-hmm. a sense. And mm-hmm. now they're like, OK, you know, get me your Muslim content quick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and a lot of Muslims haven't been writing their stories because I think for a long time we we didn't feel like there was an audience for them. So it's not like there's this, you know, cache of authors just waiting in the wings with finished manuscripts that are polished and ready to go. So it is taking a little bit of time to, to get there. But I think um, what's really nice to know with um, Salam Reads and, and with the trust I have in Zareen is that she is really curating this this beautiful collection of, of work that is, she's trying to be very thoughtful and inclusive in it. So even within the Muslim, you know, space I guess there's all sorts of writers of course and there is probably a bit of overrepresentation now of South Asian writers um, in the US and she's very mindful of that too and trying to include other authors from other backgrounds and um, you know different just different classes and races and you know all types of people to really get and levels of practice even to, to not create this monolithic view of of Muslims as one type. Um, And I think that feels, it's nice to be a part of that and also to know that um, readers can go to Islam Reads and and I feel very comfortable recommending them and and not just because I'm a part of it, but because I know the intent behind it. Um, And a lot of times there can be stories that are out there that even if they are what we call in the industry own voices, you know, written books written by people from within a community sometimes they can have unintended negative consequences um i think part of it can be the result of maybe not having had that platform for a while and in a way almost feeling like there's certain stories that we fall victim to in a way that you you're sort of reinforcing that narrative that has been put upon us and um and then maybe telling the stories that we think people want to hear um maybe things like related to being bullied or Islamophobia mm-hmm. or um, terrorism, the terrorism narrative. And, and I think there's a lot of that um, already <laughs> you yeah. know, and stuff. And so I think it's nice that Zareen is consciously creating a collection of books that move beyond that. And um, so, yeah. Do, do you find, and I mean, I know you can only speak from your own experience, but do you find that part of this call from many publishers, from all the publishers to say, you know, we want more Muslim content, we want more Muslim writers to be represented. Do you find that there's still an expectation, like maybe, maybe unspoken, but that, that 
that content that they're looking for still falls within those preconceived narratives, I guess. I, I hope not. You know, I think my, the cynical part of me thinks perhaps, um, and I, I think that there's now a growing call for, um, within, I think the, we need diverse books movement, you know, there's a new, yeah emphasis on stories that move beyond the pain and oppression type stories mm-hmm. um, to just regular stories. And there was that great article, I think, in the New York Times about um, how African-American kids don't only want to read about Harriet Tubman. <laughs> and I think <laughs> I'm, I'm misquoting the title, but it was something to that effect. And I thought, you know, it's the same same notion that, you know, whatever whatever community or background you have, you, you want, and I think children deserve to read books that are varied. And yes, there are those books where you stand up to a bully or an oppressor or overcome some adversity, but there's also just, you know, regular stories of kids doing everyday things mm-hmm. that um, need to be told as well, where you're not necessarily being marginalized or otherized right. or tormented in some way or overcoming some horrible adversity. Like, yes, there are, you know, refugees and other people who are experiencing horrific, you know, experiences, sadly, but, and, and their stories are important. I don't mean to say that they aren't, but I think when you're um, looking at a community, you know, there's 1.8 billion Muslims in the world and thankfully only a small percentage of them are refugees. Um, you don't want to over represent right. a certain type of person. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm seeing this trend and even within my own writing career, it's been fun to be able to, the new series that I had come out this past year called Zayd Salim Chasing the Dream was really a joy to write because it wasn't an issue book uh, or a series of books. It was uh, about a, a kid who represents my children in many, many ways, who's a third generation Pakistani American Muslim who loves to play basketball <laughs> and about his life within this, you know, fun, loving um culture-filled family, but at the same time, just being a regular kid and dealing with things like wanting to make the team or your best friend acting weird or, you know, your bossy older sister telling you what to do or just regular things um, that any kid could relate to no matter what their background is. That's, I went to a panel um, at Emerald City Comic Con last year on, on LGBT content in books. And that was one of the points that they made as well, you know, as with, as with any, group that you're looking at even as a whole or as a smaller part like not every book has to be an issue book um and not every author has to take that on you know sometimes characters can just happen to be muslim or happen to be gay or happen to be something else and that doesn't have to be the entire point of the book right Right. And I think as a kid, you know, you want to be the hero and you want to be, (laughs) you know, admired and not pitied. And I feel like that's something that's maybe lost. And I think people have the best intentions when they're acquiring these books or buying these books for their libraries or whatever it is. I I don't I don't think it comes from, you know, a bad place. But and I think if anything in this in the times we live in and heightened awareness of social justice issues and everything, people want to support stories that deal with heavy issues in a way. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, and I, and I understand that, but at the same time, if you're that kid and if your class is reading a book about a Muslim girl and and they're maybe only having this first interaction with your culture, if she's suffering or she's, you know, if she's a refugee or she's, you know, a slave or she's being married off at the age of 12 or whatever it is, something horrible or difficult, um, you may not, you know, you may not, 
feel happy or excited about being represented that way. Um, and I think when that's that's the challenge when when people do have limited interactions with your culture, then what side or aspect do you want them to focus on? And at the end of that book, if even if it is you know a happy ending and the person is vindicated or saved or whatever it is in some way. Um, you know, it's still that flavor of book mm-hmm. um, versus one where where you just get to be the hero um, or get to be a regular kid and admired and respected in a different way, not for overcoming hardship or. Well, um, and when you're already being set apart, like, you know, I, I was raised Jewish and, you know, the first books with Jewish characters that anyone reads are always about the Holocaust. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Always. Yeah. So, you know, then you're you're double set apart, which. Right. Uh, Interestingly, that leads me into another question that we had for you. Um, we, you know, when you were growing up, was your was your quote Pakistani American life different from your American life? You, did you feel like you were growing? Did you have different lives depending on what you were doing? Oh, sorry. I thought I silenced my phone. Ah, there's two of them in here. That's why. Sorry. <laughs> Home phone. Sorry, my husband's like, why do we even have that anymore? You did, you did um, warn me that I was going to have to edit, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, I like, yeah. Or, or did you? Yeah. Oh, that's okay. Or did you feel like you had different different lives that you had to to balance? Uh, definitely, I think like a lot of children of immigrants, um, I I felt that push and pull of how to navigate being an American and you know being. A part of the culture and traditions that my parents brought with them oh, and yeah, expected of ah sorry now she's on sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> let me tell her hi mama i'm i'm being interviewed right now can i call you back when i'm done okay thank you okay okay thank you bye sorry it's speaking okay. of moms and expectations <laughs> she's like so appropriate <laughs> Um, sorry about that. So I'll start over. Um, yes, definitely. When I was growing up, I, I definitely felt the, the push and pull of trying to balance being an American kid and trying to fit in with everything that my, my friends were doing versus what the expectations were of my parents and, and having a different culture and and traditions than, than my peers. So, um, it didn't always, it wasn't always conscious i feel like a lot of kids you know you just that that's your normal uh and you're you're balancing both of these things in a lot of ways you you have to guide your parents in some ways versus the other way around where you're telling them what they need to do for you as parents which is i think something unique to being a child of immigrants in many ways like oh guess what there's this thing called back to school night mom you're supposed to show up or you know (laughs) whatever it is um and then and then just, you know, not feeling like I actually fit in either situation. That when I was in a Pakistani environment or with, you know, relatives from overseas, I didn't feel Pakistani enough. Um, I didn't speak Urdu well. I didn't get certain things um, right away with regard to the culture. I questioned certain things. And then being with my American friends and feeling like I, I had things in my mind or things that were holding me back from feeling that I was fully American. Um, which I, I feel like a lot of a lot of children like me from any any different culture can relate to. I think that mm-hmm. that push and pull. I wasn't allowed to go to dances on Friday night because we had Shabbat dinner. Oh yeah, <laughs> I wasn't allowed that to was, go dances at all. <laughs> it was it was it was family night. So. Yeah, yeah. 
I wonder though, did did growing up in this area, you know, in the Washington D.C. suburbs, which is so international and so diverse, did that help at all, or did it? Did was that seen as as another threat, maybe from you know? Because I can see, I can see immigrant parents seeing that as a threat. Be like, well, our culture is under threat because there's so many different cultures. We need to preserve our own. Well, I think, I think for my parents, it was it was a blessing that there were other people. There was other Pakistani and, and Indian families around that they could bond with and raise their kids together. And we had a sense of community that we might not have had if we were in a, in a rural community that where we were the only right. brown family. Um, so we definitely had a community and then we had um, like a Muslim center that started when I was a kid that now has grown into a full-fledged mosque. But at the time we would go to a, a, a public middle school that was being rented out for our Sunday school education, for example. So we had resources like that, um, that, not every other community would have. And I, I think they welcomed that. And, and they didn't know what they were doing, you know, like most <laughs> most parents, like they were just figuring it out. And and I think in a lot of ways, they, you know, they didn't make it clear always why things were the way they were. It was sort of like, this is just the way it is. Like when yeah. it came to, you know, I didn't get an explanation even. And I didn't even always understand the difference between what was cultural and what was religious, because that wasn't always clearly defined either. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we just figured it out as we went along. But I think having grown up here, it was nice um, being in a DC suburb, having people from different backgrounds. I remember in my elementary school, we had a couple kids who were children of diplomats who were here, um, you know, for certain, like for three years, and then they would leave. And so we had an international flavor in a way, but I still didn't feel very understood. And compared to kids today, where there was a lot of emphasis on or there is a lot of emphasis on diversity and multiculturalism and, you know, knowing who you are and celebrating that difference. There wasn't, that yeah. didn't really exist when I was growing up. So yeah. um, I felt like people were tolerant, um, but I felt like many ways I was invisible and yeah. I didn't feel like anybody knew anything about my background, my culture, my religion. Like it was just expected that they didn't know anything about any of it. it it's amazing. I think how much, things have changed. I mean, I, so I I grew up in New Jersey, which is also a fairly, you know, multicultural, diverse area. But it, it, looking back on, you know, the kids that I went to school with in public school, like, it didn't seem very diverse in retrospect. And I've told this before, but my daughter here, in, you know, in, in Maryland, suburban D.C., when she was in first grade, they had an assembly and they, you know, like all the kids got to talk about their, their cultures at home. And mm-hmm. I mean, my daughter, my kids are, are, are biracial and bilingual. And, but there were 19 different languages spoken in her first grade, just her class, not even like including the other different classes, but just her classroom had 19 different languages spoken. That's amazing. It really is. And like, I, that's unfathomable, I think, for people who who live in what we, you know, sometimes call the flyover states, you know, it's like, they don't, it, it, it's, it's, it's so hard to understand what it's like, and why, and, and that's where this call for, you know, we need diverse books, we need, you know, representation in, on television or in films, like, that's where it's coming from. My and, kids go to a K through eight, I, I'm in Pittsburgh, and they have kids from 120 three countries at their school they have a map in the front in yeah. the entryway that has a pin in every country that there's that there's a child from at the school yeah i think that's the big difference because when i was growing up there might have been in my class you know a good 
at least a dozen, I'm guessing, different countries. But yeah. um, but we didn't know <laughs> because nobody asked. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's and true. there was no map with any anything. So I mean, I'm just guessing now, like thinking of the different names and and some of the kids I knew that they, I'm sure they had you know different parents <laughs> from somewhere. But we, you know, it wasn't celebrated the way it is now. Yeah, yeah. Some so of you... our friends keep trying to convince us to send to send our kids to to community day, the the Jewish day school with their kids. I'm like. Mm. I I can see that in one way our, our kids do go to Sunday school but on the other hand there's this map with pins in 124 <laughs> countries in the front entryway to their school so no <laughs> yeah. so I, I think about Amina's voice and the character and you know the experiences that she had would you and it sounds to me and correct me if I'm wrong but it sounds to me like you put more of your own children's experience in that book than your own it's kind of a blend. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say the the series, the Zaid Salim series, is very much my children's experience, um, and you know I, I drew heavily from from actual things that happened to them and to my husband mm-hmm. um, in his in his childhood when when writing that series. But for Amina's voice, it's definitely a blend. I would say so. Her having immigrant parents and. Um, you know, her uncle coming from overseas and right. all of a sudden that pressure of not feeling um, conservative enough or traditional enough or, you know, speaking the language well enough came from my own experience. Um, so a lot of her her personality, I would say, is taken from my own mm-hmm. and, and feeling shy and inhibited as, as a kid and things like that. Um, but I felt like I didn't want her to have the same, um, I guess, for lack of a better word, like typical immigrant story in the sense of I didn't want her to have, I, I'll preface this with saying that when I was growing up, the, t- the few times I did read books that did feature a character that came from an immigrant background, not my own, but another, um, a lot of them seemed to have this formula where the child was resentful of their culture in some way mm, or, you yeah. know, embarrassed by it or why can't my parents speak English properly or why, you know, whatever it is. And then they, they overcome that and learn to appreciate who they are. And I felt like that story or that format had been overdone in a way. And I didn't want Amina to be ashamed of who she was or embarrassed in any way. It was just, she is who she is. And um, so in that sense, I probably gave her more confidence in her identity than, than maybe (laughs) she would have if she had actually been me. Um, I mean, she deals with a little bit, you know, we, we see, we see some hints of it. Um, But I, for me, I wanted her challenges to be internal and just like re- universally relatable, like things related to you know friendship issues or confidence or other things like that. Um, and I didn't want her to, I, yeah, I wanted her to be just fine with who she is. Yeah, yeah. What were some of the books that you, uh, your either your favorite books when you were a kid or the books that you returned to again and again? Oh my goodness! So I, I was definitely a rereader. So I loved. Um, <laughs> I loved everything Beverly Cleary wrote. Yes! And, yeah, she was my, my literary hero. Yeah, I know. I hope she was forever. And um, so I just, yeah, I love her books and, and read those. Um, I had a couple of the Little House series, and I used to read that a lot, too. Um, I know it's not as popular nowadays, and I know there's controversy surrounding it, but um, I just, I love I love that whole mm-hmm. idea. And my favorite book of all time is Little Women. 
And mm-hmm. I just, I read that religiously. And my sister had a copy, which I still have, which had little women on one side. And if you flip the book over, it had little men on the other I side. I had that too! No way! <laughs> yes! <laughs> so I read that book over and over and over until I, and I would just flip it. Once I read it through many, many times, then I would just flip the book open randomly and just read wherever oh. it opened. Um, so I, I probably know parts of it by heart still. And, um, and I actually am writing my new project, which comes out next this fall, is uh, an inspired by Little Women middle grade novel. Oh, great. Uh, so it's sort of, yeah, it, it, it's a story of four sisters who are Pakistani-American um, and their experiences narrated by who would be the Joe-like character in Little Women. Um, oh, awesome. Yeah, thank you. I'm really... I'm really, it was, it was an idea I had for a very long time and wanted to write something like that. And, and then when I actually sat down to do it, I got extremely nervous and wasn't sure how to do it. And initially had imagined more of a retelling and um, like a modern version of it. And I ended up not doing that and making it for, with a younger protagonist and making it solidly middle grade. Um, But there's still elements of the original. And so for people who read the book and loved it, um, you'll definitely see a lot of parallels. But if you've never read Little Women, you you would, you know, you still get a, a different story. That's, and that comes out this fall? Yes. Oh, that's it's awesome. called March of the Story and um, in September, I believe. Oh, all right. It's on the list. <laughs> <laughs> but man, you... go. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Do you remember what the first books you read to your children were? Oh goodness. I I still have a bunch of them actually. I'm in the process of cleaning out my my bookshelves, which is a major undertaking. And some of the ones I read to them over and over again, even though they're dog-eared, I just had to keep. So, um I I read a lot of the Sandra Boynton board books to them oh, yeah. and um and the classic like Eric Carle and um Dr. Seuss and um, I'm actually looking at some of them right now. And uh, a lot of, you know, alphabet, shape, concept books, things like that. Um, once they got into stories, I did actually read a lot of Curious George to them, which is why it was so fun to write a Curious George book, because they were, <laughs> you know, my favorites as a kid, and then something I read to my kids as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we read a lot, just whatever whatever we got our hands on. And, um, and then it was fun to start reading some of my favorites with them, too, like, Ralph and the motorcycle and all that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I I still have all of my Beverly Cleary books from when I was a kid um, because I loved them so much. I would never let my mom get rid of them, so I still have uh-huh. them all. And oh, that's so great! I've passed them all on to my daughter, and my daughter is also a voracious audiobook listener. And I don't remember what the first. Um, it, it might have been the Ralph books. I think she might have gotten into the Ralph books before Ramona, but once she realized that they were all the same author, like. We just went crazy. Like she had to get them all from the library, and she has listened to every single Ramona, uh, Ramona book and Ralph book and Henry Huggins book, like so many times. Like I, it warmed my heart every time I heard uh, her listening to it or reading yeah. one of those books because I remember just loving them so much when I was a kid. Yeah, Ramona was my hero. I yeah. wanted to be her. Yeah, and that whole neighborhood and that world building was so so well done. Yeah, and I, you know I think about it, and those books they hold up even though they're set whenever they're set, the, the 50s or, or whenever, they, they hold up so well today, I think. And yeah. I, I have yet to find another series or another character that that mimics the Ramona Quimby style, 
well. You know, <laughs> like I, I just, I, I have not found a good replacement. Yeah. Yeah. And I think she really was a pioneer in the sense that people now always talk about these, you know, bold, spunky female mm-hmm. characters. Um, and she did, she did such a great job with it. Like way before that was a thing. Yeah. Um, having this, you know, very creative, very fun, like leader girl character. I loved her so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so fun to find somebody who knows it. I still think of her, like, yeah. with the tin, like the coffee cans on her feet, making the stilts and then yeah. eating all the apples and like things like that, where she was just so fun. Yeah. Oh, man. I want to go back and read them all again now. <laughs> I know. I should too. I should too. I have a few. And my, we checked out a bunch of the library and I bought a few of them for my kids, but I should. Yeah. Should indulge. Definitely. <laughs> and I will I will say if you are audiobook listeners, um Oh gosh. I'm I'm gonna have let me I'm gonna have to look this up because the um so the Henry Huggins books, a lot of them are read by Neil Patrick Harris. Oh wow. And the uh Ramona books I'm looking it up right now. Um 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 I'm blanking on her name. Um um, While you're looking it up, speaking yes. of Neil Patrick Harris, my kids really enjoyed his books. Uh, yeah. Oh, the the magic books. Yeah. Uh-huh. The, the magic misfits. Yes. Yep. My, my daughter is, is loves them, so we just got her the second one. But uh, Stockard Channing it does narrates all of the Ramo- oh, wow. the Ramona books, and it's just on point. Like she does such a good job. Oh, that's so good to know. Yeah. So you know, add them to your add them to the library list if you uh, if you're interested. <laughs> That could be a fun way to re-listen, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a uh, couple of fun, I guess, fun questions. But your bio on your website says that you are obsessed with Spain. So I have to ask um, where, where that started. Yeah, well, so as you know, I'm, I live in Maryland. And I am not only a Maryland resident. I've lived within the same five five mile radius my entire life, um, which is strange because, as I mentioned, I studied international affairs and I worked yeah. in international health and, and had big plans to work all over the world and ended up being here <laughs> but the one stint I had away from home um, was a semester abroad when I was in college um, to Spain and I was in the south of Spain in Sevilla and I just fell in love with it and um, made a really good friend there and so I, I, I go back as often as I can and just um, just loved everything about it the food the culture the scenery like everything uh, so yes it's my happy place nice have you have you been back since or do you yeah, yeah yeah we've we've gone back thankfully like we've been lucky to be able to go and take our kids too um so they've been uh a few times and and they love it too now which is nice i wanted them to have a special connection to yeah the, the ways i love so much and so they do they kind of consider it a second home too oh, which is that's, that's great nice. yeah that's great that's great. So I didn't. I haven't actually yet taken them to Pakistan, which is. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> I know it's crazy. That's like, a long trip. Spain <laughs> is so much closer. It is. It is. And like, but I mean, we have relatives there who are like, "What is your problem? Why haven't you brought your children here?" But I think, uh, yeah, it just hasn't hasn't happened. And luckily, we have we have relatives visit us here, and so um, that's hopefully next. Uh, yeah. But, well, you know what it is? It's it's like the you never do the touristy stuff where you live. And so it's like right. you have you have family there, so you're like, Well, we'll get there eventually, but let's right. do something else. And it just it never happens. We have the same problem. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was part of it. And then my, my younger son is really scrawny and now he's less so, but he was and um just very underweight his whole life. And mm. so I was like, Well, at the very least you're gonna get 
a decent yeah. upset stomach while you're there. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> it just happens no matter but how much boiled water you drink. Yeah. So like, I don't know, like maybe when he gets a little heartier, I'll take him when he can afford to <laughs> lose a pound or two. So I think he's there now. All right. Um, and I know, I know, Shiri, I know you want to talk about cooking, so I'm going to just do. step back. <laughs> So um, I was looking at your bio and I noticed that it says you really enjoy cooking and baking. Um, So um, Jamie's website, the robots that, that I write for sometimes um, we are doing two cooking challenges. Jamie and I together are trying to cook 50 cookies, bake 50 cookies this year um, that we collectively have never baked before. Um, And we, I am doing um, a challenge that I actually did do last year but i'm writing it up for the website this year which is i'm trying to cook a hundred recipes that i've never cooked before okay so if you wouldn't mind we would love for you to recommend (laughs) a cookie and a recipe that you really love so that we can try them oh wow okay well a cookie (laughs) way to put her on the spot (laughs) yeah that i love so well i had a cookie that was wildly popular but the main ingredient is impossible to find now um it was a score you know like oh, the score toffee yeah, candy yeah it, they used to sell score bits just like you can get heath toffee bits you could get score bits which were infinitely better than the heath ones so what's and how how a, are they different from heath i don't know like the texture they're just gooier when they melt okay and um i don't know if like heath bars i guess it's a similar concept it was like a toffee wrapped around chocolate but um i've i've tried the heath bars the heath bits many many times and it just does not work as well as the score bits do um and so it was a a toffee cookie that was on the score package (laughs) which doesn't exist anymore but you can buy them from canada or from i don't know where it's like it's ridiculous but um there's like these jumbo bags you can buy online if, if you're inclined um which is just expensive i'm looking it it up right now amazon actually sells them yeah for like 30 dollars or something crazy like 30 well you get 30 it's a pack of 36 for 33 i mean hershey makes them so um you can get the individual packets uh well it's like a box of 36 oh my goodness well that i have not seen before that must be relatively new because i haven't done this in a in more than a couple years probably but i used to buy a five pound bag it was like one jumbo <laughs> bag like from a restaurant depot type place. Awesome. and um and make them but yeah so the, the small bag might have the recipe on it it's a really really good cookie right. um, Sc- score cookies okay yeah really really yeah. good all right and in terms of a recipe do you have a favorite ethnicity oh i'm all over the place have you made i just made my husband i used to make a a thai basil chicken that i thought was pretty decent and then my husband decided to make it also which i thought was kind of rude like once you've mastered a recipe in a family like that's kind of your thing but he decided he could do it better (laughs) and he did um and so i just made his thai basil chicken recipe last night and it is a lot better than mine was um and it's pretty delicious like restaurant quality um and I can share it with you if you like. That'd be awesome. Okay. <laughs> if you don't have that already. No, um, I don't. And that's not a worry because my husband never cooks. <laughs> yeah. And it's really quick. The, the nice thing about it is it tastes really gourmet, but it's really, really fast too. Perfect. So, yeah. That'd be amazing. Thank you. Okay. That's awesome. Um, so aside from the book that you've got coming out this fall, which I assume if it's coming out this fall, you've already finished writing. What else are you working on at the moment? 
So, um, well, we are talking about doing a sequel to Amino's Voice <gasps> now. Um, just in the early stages of figuring out whether um, whether it's going to work. But I hope so. We, we feel good about it. Um, so that would be something I'd be writing next. Um, I'm also hoping to expand the Zaid Salim series. Right now it's three books. Um, but I really, really enjoyed writing them. And um, I think I have a few more stories to tell from that character's point of view. So I'd love to continue that. Um, I'm also going to be co-authoring a book with Adam Gidwitz. Oh, yeah. I love him. Yeah, he's amazing. And so he's developed this uh, new series. I don't know if you've seen it called the Unicorn Rescue Society. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So he and I are going to be writing book six of that series together. Oh, wow. Uh, probably later this year. So, um, yeah. And then I have a couple of picture books I'm working on. So I usually try to work on a picture book and a longer, you know, longer novel at the same time. So, um, so different yeah. fingers and different pies, <laughs> but all fun. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, and it feels really nice to know that things I write, you know, have a likelihood of being read. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> you know, amazing. Um, because I still have that little voice that's like, what are you doing? No, I don't yeah. want to read this. Yeah. Um, right, whatever people are like, oh, you know, you just you just write for yourself and don't worry if it's ever going to be read. I'm like, no. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know who those people are because I find writing painful. I mean, I, I really struggle to to get the first drafts written. Um, and when you were talking about, you know, discipline and a schedule, I'm like, oh, it's only. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like agonizing during that process. Everybody so. has their own process. So for some, I mean, I talked, you know, I talked to Kate DiCamillo and she is the kind of author that she wakes up before the sun. Like she'll wake up at like four to five o'clock in the morning and she'll pound out a day's worth of writing before the sun oh. even comes up. And, and she, she's hardcore. She's hardcore. <laughs> Kelly Sue DeConnick does that too because she has kids. So she gets up before her kids get up and writes until she has to get them up and then writes after they go to school. But she goes to bed really early. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was the opposite. I would go to bed really late. So mm -hmm. I would wait until everybody went to sleep and everything else was done. And then I'd write until the wee hours of the morning and then not get up in the morning. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and my husband would be the one getting the kids off to school. And, and other people are like, you're the only mom I know who's waking up at 10 o'clock in the day. But, but I'm um, getting my word count. Whatever works. <laughs> yeah. Dude, but I was like, but no I was judgment here. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's got their own, their own way to get the words down and there's no wrong way yeah, and that's what that's what i have learned so when i speak to other authors who who confess that they have as irregular and erratic mm -hmm. writing habits as me i feel much better oh yeah because um, i am envious of the kate to camillos of the world who <laughs> have that discipline we yeah. always ask and plenty of people do it like you do <laughs> uh, well, that's yeah including me we, <laughs> Yay. we I, I we've talked to dozens and dozens of authors and we we've asked many of them what their routine is and we've probably gotten just as many different answers so yeah there's no there's no right way there's no one way everybody has their own way and there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's done at the that's end. right about it. Yeah. that's right as long as you can meet those deadlines yeah yeah and i do do that i <laughs> do This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. <laughs>